I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning and that you will turn in them to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, which Stephanie read for us just a moment ago, and I'm going to read it again in just a couple of minutes. We still don't have uh, a kids' class during the sermon time for just a couple more weeks, and so we do have sheets in the back for the little ones. Once again, Lisa has provided those for your kids if that would be helpful. A little bit of coloring, a little bit of tying into the text that I'm preaching from today. It's page 812 if you're using the Bibles that are in the backs of the chairs, and that would help you. And as I've said before and want to always say, if taking one of those would be a blessing to you, your family, or someone that you know, please take it and uh, put it to good use. We can replace them easily. In William Shakespeare's play, Henry V, there is a famous scene where the titular character, Henry V, delivers a speech on the occasion of a great battle. He and his, his group are greatly outnumbered, and they need a bit of an edge. And Henry speaks in his famous speech with patriotic pride and brotherly love to his men. And he says that all who survive this battle that is coming would be regarded as heroes throughout future generations and in future celebrations of that day. And that all who would fight in the battle would be remembered and honored forever. And he says, at the, toward the end of this speech, this story shall a good man teach his son. And this day shall never go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. Perhaps you've heard those words before. Maybe you didn't know it was Shakespearean. Maybe you've never heard it before. But I think these words from a fictional Shakespearean speech capture one aspect of the message of Jesus' words in our text today in Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14. And before we really get rolling in this text, I want to take just a moment to sort of reorient ourselves regarding what genre of scripture we're in. We just finished our summer in Psalms study for this year, and the Psalms are poetry. Matthew's gospel is different. It's a gospel, which is basically mostly narrative, but there's some persuasion to it as well. It is an evangelistic document that is seeking to convince people to follow Jesus. So it is not simply a historical account, but it is certainly filled with narrative or storytelling. And in our text, and in a lot of Matthew, Jesus is speaking. Jesus himself, the Son of God, the Word of God, is speaking. And in our text today, he is not just speaking, he's preaching, actually, the Sermon, the sermon on the Mount, where in previous chapters, he has expressed that he came to fulfill the Jewish law and then gone on to teach what that fulfillment looks like in his kingdom. And as to whom Jesus is speaking, he is speaking to his disciples. He's not actually speaking immediately to first century Christians like us. He is speaking to those who were following him on his way to death. 
So the cross hadn't happened, the resurrection hadn't happened, the ascension hadn't happened, Pentecost hadn't happened. And so these were disciples walking with Jesus as he was spreading the news of his kingdom and moving towards Calvary. The previous passage to our text for today is Matthew's record of Jesus saying what he says in verse 12, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And when we looked in that passage back in the spring, I said that this was the summary of the heart of Jesus' sermon, even though that sermon wasn't quite over yet. And so it's as if Jesus was saying in verse 12, I've said all of these things about the law. I've said all of these things about kingdom living and about anger and about lust and about judging. And here's how to sum it up. Do to others what you wish they would do to you. And it's on the heels of that summary statement that Jesus then begins his sermon's conclusion. And we have, starting in verse 13 and going through verse 27, four groups of pairs. Not like the fruit, like the two. In verses 13 through 14, we've got two gates and two ways. In verses 15 through 20, we've got two kinds of fruit and two kinds of teachers. In verses 21 through 23, two groups who claim to be Christ's. And then in verses 24 through 27, two responses pictured by two foundations. And this, our text this morning, verses 13 through 14, is the first of those four groups of pairs. Let's read it again. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. These are the words of our Lord. And so in this first group of pairs, we see this description of two ways and two gates. And Jesus, the master teacher, is using this first image and then the the three following in, in the following verses to indicate the fact that people have two choices before them in light of his teaching. A choice of two ways to live, if you will. Either Jesus' way or their own way. In the following passage, you see Jesus use imagery of fruit, describing what kinds of teachers his children, his people should follow. We see this image of the kind of foundation his people should build their lives on at the end of of chapter 7, or towards the end of it. And we also have this eschatological image of the two claims that people will make as evidence of whether or not they are authorized, if you will, to be part of his kingdom. And in today's passage, this image of roads and gates. Two ways, two gates, two roads that people will go on as they walk the path of life. And both of these images before us, gates and ways, are described in the same ways. They are either wide or narrow. One way is narrow, the other is wide. One gate is narrow, the other is wide. And besides the command that Jesus gives at the very beginning of verse 13, the rest of it, of these two verses, because remember, verse numbers were added hundreds of years later just to make it easier for people like you and me to find our place. 
But following that first phrase, enter by the narrow gate, the rest of these two verses are essentially identical with descriptions swapped out. You see it? Look at the end of verse 13. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. And then in verse 14, it's essentially the same. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So at the end of verse 13, there's this wide gate and wide way. In verse 14, there's a narrow gate and a narrow way. And seeing that is really helpful for us as we study what Jesus meant as he said these things to his two disciples. There's a pretty simple comparison between the two. There's a wide gate and a narrow gate and a wide way and a narrow way and an easy way and a hard way and the end being destruction or life. Clearly, the point that Jesus is making here and in the rest of the verses that follow in his great sermon is that following him is the way that leads to life. He's saying that following him is not the easiest way, but it is the way of life. You'll see in a moment that I think he's talking about eternal life. He's saying that following him is going to require sacrifice, but that the sacrifice is going to pay off in infinite fashion in the end. And so what Jesus is doing here at the end of his sermon is essentially calling people to respond and to follow him, to go his way, not their own way. That's how we have to read the different gates and the different ways in verses 13 through 14. The wide way is our own way, the worldly way, the way of self Worship, the way of sight rather than faith that leads to laying up earthly treasures, the way of sin, the way of rejection of King Jesus. But the narrow way is Jesus' way, the way of worshiping God, the way of faith that lays up treasure in heaven, the way of righteousness, the way of embracing Jesus as king. And so you could kind of read it this way, your way, the sinful way, the world's way, is easy, and those who enter by it are many. But my way, the righteous way, the way of my kingdom, is hard, and those who find it are few. That's the point that Jesus is making. So that's the point I want to make today. If you don't get anything else from all of this today, get this. The way of the kingdom of Jesus is the more difficult but better way than the way of self and the world. Six truths in this passage that together, I think, point us back to that main point. Three truths about the wide way, three truths about Jesus' way. First of all, the wide way starts easier than Jesus' way. You see that there in verse 13. The gate is wide. And do you see the order here? The gate is wide that leads to the way that is easy that leads to the end of destruction. The gate comes first then the way, then the end. And I don't think I'm reading into it to say that the order there is significant. I don't think the gate that Jesus is talking about here is a gate that comes at the end of a journey. You take the way and then you come to the gate and you enter into the kingdom. No, I think he's talking about a gate that's at the beginning of this journey, the gate that then leads to this way. In these verses, it's not the way that leads to the gate, it's those two ways that come after the gates that then lead to either life or destruction. One leads to life, the other leads to death. And so going through this gate, starting on this way, is a deliberate act 
of entering into a kind of a spiritual gate. And both of these gates are going to lead to something. And the path that rejects Jesus and goes one's own way starts at a wide gate. He says the gate is wide and the way is easy. So Jesus just acknowledges this as a fact. Going your own way, going the way of the world, going the way of sin, going the way of self, at least starts easier. The gate is wide and the way is easy. In other words, it's easy to get in. There's plenty of room at the wide gate. You might have a translation in front of you that uses the word broad instead of wide. The original word simply means spacious or roomy. So it's comfy at the wide gate. At the wide gate, diverse opinions on morals are welcome. Tolerance of sin is totally fine there. Laziness, lack of self-control, being ruled by your passions and indulging in whatever fleeting temptation may arise is normal. And it's great at first. And you know how this feels, don't you? In a moment in time, the idea of indulging in some kind of tempting pleasure, sexual pleasure, an overindulgence of food, drinking too much, whatever it might be, sounds great at the moment and even feels great for a moment. You may think to yourself in that moment, oh, this will help relieve the stress of the day. I'll get an escape from what is hard in life. And friends, that's allowed at the wide gate and in the wide way. C.S. Lewis actually said it this way when he described his rejection of Christ as a younger man. I put it up on the screen so you could follow along. C.S. Lewis says, I was altering or changing, I believe, to one does feel. And oh, the relief of it. From the tyrannous noon of divine revelation, I passed into the cool evening of twilight of higher thought, where there was nothing to be obeyed, nothing to be believed, except what was either comforting or exciting. That's why he changed from I believe to one does feel, ruled by his feelings, ruled by his comforts, rejecting anything that needs to be obeyed, rejecting anything that needs to be believed. And just like Lewis described in his experience, one's individuality reigns supreme at the wide gate and on the wide way. Whatever inclinations you have, you're good. Whatever your besetting sins, that's fine. You don't have to change. Superficial, empty religion that's more about looking good to others than actually laying down your life for the service of the king, that's fine. No problem. Worldly ambitions that drive you, the pursuit of earthly treasures, the looking down on others whose values or ideas or interpretations don't match yours, that's fine. That's fine. There's room for everybody here. It's all part of the gig at the wide gate and on the wide way. It's all about you. 
Whatever suits you, whatever you want, however you're wired, whatever your proclivities, whatever you need, you deserve it. You don't need to repent of anything. You don't need to submit to a king. You don't need to change. You don't need to do anything you don't want to do. You deserve to be happy. So come on down to the wide gate. Go on the wide way. It's easy at first. Because eventually, Jesus says, number two, the wide way leads to destruction. See that in the middle of verse 13? The gate is wide and the way is easy. That leads to destruction. So Jesus is saying it's easy at first, but the end is disastrous. This word destruction here is very important. Jesus doesn't actually explain here what exactly he means by it, but it is the same word used multiple times throughout the New Testament to describe the punishment of hell that unrepentant sinners receive. And so while you might think this is the case, Jesus is not saying if you go your own way, things will turn out bad for you in this life. And that's certainly sometimes true. But if that's all he means, then it doesn't fit with the first thing that he said before because he just said that the way is easy. And so what he's saying is that this easy way, the wide way, the world's way, the unrepentant way, the self way leads to destruction of an eternal kind to an ending of destruction. It leads to the eternal punishment of hell. It's clearly the connotation of the word. It's clearly used this way multiple other times in the New Testament. Many, many, many times. And did you know, my friend, that Jesus actually talked about hell, such as in this passage, more than anyone else? Boy, we are mistaken when we think of Jesus as a softy. He's not. He spoke of and warned about hell, just like he's doing here, more than anyone else in the New Testament. Look it up for yourself. You'll see it. Jesus isn't afraid of someone objecting to an idea of a place of eternal punishment for those who do not submit to the rule of the universe's creator. He just flat out says it here. I've said all this stuff about life in the kingdom. Now you've got a decision to make before you, either my way or the way that leads to hell kind of stark, kind of harsh, especially in today's culture. But these are the words of our Christ. These are the words of Jesus. But even though it leads to destruction, the third thing Jesus says is that those who enter by it are many. The wide way is more popular than Jesus's way. That's right at the end of verse 13. Despite the fact that going the way of self-worship and worldly pleasure and an unrepentant life leads to the eternal destruction of hell, Jesus says there are many who are on that path. If you look at that word many and contrast it with its counterpart in verse 14, the word few, the point is clear. It's more popular, more common for people to go the wide way than Jesus' way. But why, you might say? Why would people reject the way that leads to life? Why would many, in Jesus' words, refuse to lay down their burdens and follow Jesus? Why would many go the way that leads to eternal death 
Well, my friends, it's partly because of the fact that it's easier at first. We stupid humans have a really hard time thinking past what our feelings want for the next five minutes rather than thinking about the big picture. And certainly in our time, many, many years after Jesus said this, we live in a society that's especially accustomed to instantaneous gratification. But there's nothing new under the sun. People had the same problem then as they do now. They've always wanted the easier way over the harder way. And Jesus points that out here. Another reason is probably to do with the fact that it's a bit offensive to be told by some guy that you need to follow him or end up in hell forever. That's not a popular message. The Apostle Paul called the gospel message an offense because the message of the gospel is good news, but it's good news that's preceded by the bad news that unless you turn to Jesus and embrace him and turn away from your sin, you're headed for doom. And so if you think about it, it makes sense in a way that it's a less popular gate and way because I'm sort of restating what has already been said, but just following through the flow of the passage, the first truth regarding following Jesus is that Jesus' way is harder than the wide way. That's what Jesus is saying at the beginning of verse 14. The way that leads to life is hard, if you just take those words before you and flip them a little bit. The way is hard that leads to life, and the gate is narrow. It's not nearly as spacious feeling or as comfortable feeling as they have it over there at the wide gate. Remember the history of the Israelites? Oh man, if we were only back in Egypt, the food there was way better than this manna and quail that I'm getting exhausted of. It's the same thing over and over and over again. Good grief, this desert is frustrating and seemingly unending and painful. Man, I wish I didn't have to follow Moses and Aaron. I don't like the way they lead things. Just over and over again, discontentment with the way that God chose for them. Isn't that the same heart that chooses the wide way over God's way? The wide way seems nicer, and God's way feels harder and is harder but when people reject the rule of the king, the true king, do things actually wind up getting better for them in the end? No. Did it go better for Israel? No. And if you don't know that for yourself, read your Old Testament and you will see. It did not go better for Israel when they went their own way. The way of the king is hard. His is an unexpected kingdom. It's not what you might think it would be. It's not what you might think it should be. It's not how you would draw it up. It's hard. It's not follow me and you'll be healthy and wealthy and happy all the time. Because of that, I have a little bit of a problem with that children's song, I'm in right, out, right, up, right, down, right, happy all the time. No, we're not. No, we're not. It's not follow me and you'll be happy all the time. It's follow me and you will have trouble, Jesus says. But he also says, but I have overcome the world. And he also says, I am with you always. And so my friends, a life of following Jesus is a life of death. Death to self. 
death to worldly pleasures and ambitions, death to ease and comfort, death, in our context, to the American dream, all for the sake of the life that is found in the eternal kingdom of God. And of course, I think you know this, but I want to say it, it is not that following Jesus is only always physically miserable. Of course not. There are many earthly blessings that Jesus' followers experience daily that we attest to and give thanks for over and over again, as we should. But following Jesus requires a cost. Dying to self, putting away your own identity in order to identify with him. Jesus speaks of this many more times in just Matthew's gospel. Look over at chapter 8. Maybe you don't even have to turn a page. We'll get there in just a few weeks. Matthew 8, verses 19 through 22. When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said, follow me. Leave the dead to bury their dead. We'll deal with that when we get there. More accurately, my dad will deal with that when we get there because he's preaching that one. Chapter 10, verses 16 through 18. You might turn a page for that one. Jesus says to his disciples, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men. They will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Look down at verse 24 of this same passage. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. In other words, they're going to treat me this way. They're going to treat you this way. Look down at verse 37 of this same verse or chapter. Chapter 10, verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I could go on and on to passage after passage throughout the New Testament that communicates this same truth, but I'll just leave it there for now in the section that we're in. Friends, following Jesus costs you something. It costs you yourself. And so no wonder, number two, Jesus' way is less popular than the wide way. Jesus says at the end of verse 14 of our text, those who find it are few. It's harder requires a submission to a king. It requires obedience to someone else. It requires dying to yourself. It requires setting aside your own ambitions, your own desires, your own selfish plans and even sins, and then submitting completely to the calling and mission of that king. You know, I also think that the wide way is more popular in part because people have been deceived into thinking that the wide gate and the wide way actually is the best way to go. So rebellion is certainly a part of it, but in some cases people are just deceived. 
I mean, think about it. On the one side, if you think of it as a fork in the road, you've got this big, beautiful, gated highway marked freedom and fun. And on the other side, you've got a splintery, wooden, cross-shaped gate that says death and sorrow. So they don't know that the, the wide, beautiful gate is a gate to a highway to hell. And they don't know that it might have freedom and fun at the entrance and even on the road, but at the end is death and sorrow. And they don't know that while at this gate it begins with death and sorrow and certainly includes more death and sorrow on the road, taking up a cross and following Jesus, the laying down of one's earthly life for the sake of eternal life, it is a gate that ultimately leads to a road that ultimately leads to eternal life in a relationship with God. I think it's exactly what John Calvin meant when he said in his commentary on this passage, each of them knowingly and willfully rushes headlong because they are ruined in the midst of a vast crowd. They do not know that they are ruined. No wonder people choose the big gate. It's less popular than the wide way. Everybody's going to the freedom and fun gate. That's where I'm heading. It looks a lot nicer. Without the good news proclaimed of salvation through faith by grace, people will continue to go their own way in this perpetual state of a dazed stupor in their spiritual deadness. They are spiritually dead in their sin. How can they look with eyes of faith at a wooden splintery cross marked death and sorrow and say, that's the way I need to go? They need Jesus to come to them and show them the way. The good news is that he does. Number three, Jesus' way is worth it at the end. See that in the middle of verse 14? The gate is narrow and the way is hard. That leads to life. Jesus is giving good news here. Do you see it? It's sort of sandwiched between some negative stuff, but that is good news. The good news is that even though the way is hard, even though the path is painful, even though the crowds will pressure you and even persecute you when you go Jesus' way, even though sin is blinding you from the truth of his way, he promises life to all who follow him by faith. And that's what it takes, following by faith what he said to his disciples when he called them. We saw this already earlier in Matthew. He simply says, follow me. And over and over again, Jesus calls his disciples to follow him, and it took faith to follow Jesus. Think about the fishermen, the brothers Peter and Andrew, and James and John. They dropped their nets. They left their family business and followed Jesus. Matthew, the tax collector, he dropped his earthly identity as a materially wealthy, successful tax collector, probably with some political influence of some kind, to become a nomad on the road with Jesus, who said, in Matthew 8, had nowhere to lay his head. But because Jesus called them, they were given faith to see that following him is a far better choice than the wide gate and the wide way. Because the wide way leads to destruction. The wide way leads to death. But Jesus' way leads to life. And when you contrast that word in the middle of 14, life, 
with its counterpart in the previous verse, destruction. You contrast those two words together. That word destruction is referring to eternal punishment and judgment of hell. So I think it's clear what kind of life Jesus is talking about here. Eternal life. It is a Greek word that can mean either physical or eternal life, but in the context, I think a proper interpretation is clear. Instead of eternal death, the way of Jesus leads to eternal life. And you know, Jesus actually very helpfully provides for us a definition of eternal life. Look at the screen, John 13, excuse me, 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is ultimately what eternal life is. It's not playing on your harp on a cloud with a little naked cherub bottom. That is not eternal life. He's talking about having a relationship with God through Jesus, knowing him. And so no wonder Jesus says it's worth it in the end. The end is a relationship with God, with our creator, with Jesus, our savior. You know how Paul the apostle felt about the prospect of knowing Jesus? Philippians 3, 7 through 10, Paul says, we, by the way, we just had an absolute blast looking at this in men's Bible study a couple weeks ago. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In order to know Jesus, in order to have a relationship with him, both now and forever, Paul says that he counts everything else as rubbish in comparison. Paul says very much right here in the, in the text preceding, in the context of Philippians 3, I'll give up my religious prestige, I'll give up my national heritage, I'll give up my political influence, I'll give up my own self-esteem just so I can know Jesus and follow him. You see, my friends, the gate, the way, is actually more of a who than a what. The way, the gate, is Jesus. He said so himself. John 10, 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way, the gate, is Jesus. You know, if you turn in your Bibles just another couple pages to Matthew 11, you'll see something very precious that Jesus says to his disciples as well. Perhaps a passage known by those of us who have been in the faith for a long time. Matthew 11, starting at verse 28. Come to me, 
So this is another call. Follow me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't it interesting that the same Jesus that said, follow me and you'll be persecuted and follow me and you will have it hard and you will suffer is the same Jesus who also said, follow me and you will find rest. And my yoke is easy. See, my friends, the life that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7, 14, the life that comes at the end of the way of the kingdom is glorious. At the end of the way to the kingdom of God is a life of rest, a life of peace and joy and love because it's a life of Him. It's Him that is that life. Have you heard of the old American spiritual that actually was brought up in our Summer in Psalm series just several weeks ago? Give me Jesus. It's from the mid-1800s. It was embraced by African slaves in America as they sang it in faith amidst their horrific sorrows. And here's the refrain. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. That is the song of a heart that embraces the narrow and painful way of life in the unexpected kingdom of Jesus. Because the end is Jesus himself. That life that I'm looking forward to, that peace, that rest, that joy, that hope is Jesus. Now, the very beginning of this passage, chapter 7, verse 13, has a phrase right at the beginning, and I sort of glossed over it at the beginning. We haven't talked about it yet, but it's the whole point. So I wanted to end with it. It's what today's sermon is leading to. It's what Jesus starts with. It's the command that he gives, enter by the narrow gate. That's what this passage is ultimately all about. It's a call from Jesus. He is wrapping up this large section of teaching. He's giving these four groups of pairs to express, through images and illustrations, the truth that people must respond to who he is and what he is saying. And in this first image, he is making the right response obvious. Choose the narrow gate. Don't go through the wide gate. Because even though at first it'll seem better, it's going to lead you to hell. But the narrow gate that leads to the harder way will actually lead to life. It'll lead to me. It'll lead to life with me forever. And I suspect that in a sermon like this, some of you who have been in the faith for a long time may be sitting there thinking, well, this is a nice evangelistic gospel presentation, but I'm already a Christian, so I guess I can just listen to someone else's preaching for the rest of this week to get what I need. And while you would be right to assess my preaching as inferior to many others, I would caution you against viewing this passage as having nothing to do with you. And to be sure... Let me be clear. This is the point of Jesus' words here in verse 13 at the very beginning. Enter by the narrow gate. And so if you have never embraced Jesus as king, if you have never entered through the narrow gate, 
and followed him, I think you already know what Jesus is calling you to do in this passage. You need to enter the gates to the kingdom of God and embrace Jesus as king and start walking that way that leads to eternal life, looking forward by faith to what God has in store for you in the age to come. Children, teens, listen to me. Look at me. The way to life is Jesus. Some of you may mistakenly think that the way to eternal life is your parents' faith. It has nothing to do with what your parents believe. It has to do with what you will do with Jesus. It has nothing to do with whether or not you come to church. It has nothing to do with whether or not you do all the bad things your friends or cousins or neighbors are doing. It has everything to do with Jesus. So I ask you, everyone, have you entered the cross-shaped gate, if you will? Have you laid down your earthly treasures and burdens there and followed Jesus on his way? If you never have, please don't wait. Do it today. And for those of you who already are following Jesus, to think that this passage isn't for you would be a mistake because remember to whom Jesus was speaking, his disciples, people who were following him. And indeed, verse 28, we'll get there eventually, says that there were crowds listening to him. But the sermon started at the very beginning in chapter 5 with Jesus just gathering his disciples around and teaching them. And so, yes, he is talking to a group of people with some who hadn't embraced him yet as king, but he was talking to his disciples. And so, yes, my brothers and sisters who are Christians, this is a passage for you. You need to hear it. You need to receive it. You need to obey it. Here's what I mean. I think we as Christians today can apply this passage to our lives by saying something like this. Keep on the narrow way. And I don't mean by that, you may know this about me, but in case you don't, I don't mean that in order to keep your salvation, you have to keep your life up to snuff. In no way am I saying that. You could never do that. If it was up to us, we'd all end up in hell. So it's not just that you need to hold on to it. He will hold on to you if you are his. Praise God. But because to go Jesus' way necessarily means staying on Jesus' way. And you know, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is not that once saved, always saved, as if you've got some sort of fire insurance policy that can never be nullified. It does mean that no true Christian can ever go from being saved to not saved anymore. But being a true follower of Jesus means a lifetime of dying to self over and over again, a lifetime on that narrow way, a lifetime filled with putting off sin and putting on righteousness, as Paul talks about in his letters, by the gracious work of the Holy Spirit in us. It's a life on the narrow way. It's a life of walking day by day, by faith and not by sight, trusting that even though the path is painful, even though the way is hard, even though it's narrow, at the end is life, life beyond what your finite human mind can even imagine, life with Jesus. Oh, my dear Christian friend, I call you today, have faith. 
keep on. If you have entered the narrow gate, if you are on the narrow way, it's the right way. Keep on it. It's leading to life eternal. I know your path is one of suffering. I know it's not popular with your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors and your family members. I know it's hard, but my friends, it's worth it. It's worth it. The wide way and easy way begins with pleasure but ends in pain. You start by feeling alive, alive in yourself, free to do whatever you want, but it leads to eternal death. But the narrow way, the way of Jesus, begins with pain but ends in pleasure. See why it's an unexpected kingdom? You start by feeling death, death to self, submission to the king, but it leads to eternal life. You'll be ridiculed. You'll be persecuted, perhaps. You'll have pain. You'll be in the minority, but you'll have life. So as Brian said at the beginning, or prayed at the beginning of our service, these are some hard words, aren't they? And after hearing these hard words from Jesus, I think it would be good for us to hear some assurance, too. Because Jesus did say that those who go his way are few, and those who go the wide way are many. But I want you to see what John says in Revelation 7, verses 9 through 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What do you notice about the crowd in the vision that John sees in Revelation 7? It's a great multitude that no one can number. And look further at what he says in verses 14 through 17. He said to me, these people, at the very beginning of that passage, are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's eternal life in the presence of Jesus. That's the life to come that is promised for all who follow him, my friends. And so, yes, comparatively, the number of people on the wide way will be greater on earth than those on the narrow way. But in the end, it's a great multitude that no one could number who will live in the presence of the Lord and be sheltered by his presence forever. And so have faith. My brothers and sisters, have faith. We who follow Jesus through the narrow gate and on the narrow way are indeed like a few, happy few, band of brothers, but we are also many. And if you've never turned to Jesus, if you've never entered the narrow gate to go on the wide way, wide way to go to eternal life, please do so today. Oh Lord, please 
give the eyes of the hearts of everyone in this room right now faith to see and to believe that the narrow way, your way, is the way that leads to life. And if anyone here today has never turned from their own way and entered through the narrow gate, may they turn to you today and wait no longer to do so. And for those of us who are already on the narrow way, give us faith and grace and strength to persevere by your Spirit's help and through your grace. Help us to have joy while we're on this narrow and hard and unpopular and painful way, knowing by faith what's coming in the end. And help us to believe and to live out the truth that there is nothing greater than knowing you. And may our lives be characterized by the words of that old spiritual song, Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song called Knowing You, Jesus. There is no greater thing.